Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. (laughs) You guys are in for a treat with today's guest. He is a USA Today bestselling author, a father, a husband, a veteran. He's been a commercial diver. He says he's just a guy stringing together words, but his favorite quote is, life is an adventure when we mindfully live every moment, and he is definitely doing that. Today, he is going to teach us the recipe for overcoming disaster. G. Michael Hoff, welcome. Check out that background. Wow, I love it. <laughs> How's it going? Good. It's going really good. Thank you. I'll tell you, your books are one of the only books that both me and my husband have read and both loved, so that is amazing. Which, and by the way, that's kind of rare, by the way. Well, you know, it's just because how often will sometimes husband and wife have the same kind of taste? Like my own wife doesn't, I hate to say it, but she doesn't like my books. <laughs> really? Well, she, well, I mean, she likes my writing. She just doesn't like, you know, the genre, the post-apocalyptic genre. She's more of kind of the chick-led romance, that kind of thing. Which I can appreciate, you know, but that's kind I, of I am thing. too. Truthfully, I think the end series was the first post-apocalyptic series I had ever read, but I was drawn in from the very beginning. And it's interesting because I think my husband actually found out about the series on a podcast and the way that they were describing the series. He was like, I got to check that out. Yeah. I think I know the podcast it was on. Yeah. I, I think like Jocko Willing yeah, was Jocko's, talking about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, and then I messaged you. I was like, did you know that he mentioned that? Because that's how my husband found out about it. Yeah. yeah. Which had to well, well, be good for publicity. That guy's got a huge audience. Of course. Yeah, of course. That, all, all that stuff's good for publicity, without a doubt, yeah. And also, I heard you say that when you decided to go all in on writing, you didn't take a course, you didn't yeah. take a seminar, you decided no. to flush out a couple of chapters and give it to your wife and see what she thought. I loved that part of your story because I feel like so many people before they take action and doing things in their lives, they feel like I've got to take a course. I've got to study. I've got to have it perfect. Yeah. And I, I I think a lot of that comes, I just, I can only talk about myself in that regards and the reason, because that'll be a way of self-doubt or me kind of interfering with, with what I know is like organically and supposed to go in that direction and being led in a direction. And then I, I will put up roadblocks and say, well, I'm, I'm not worthy enough to be a writer until I've taken a course or I've done this, I've done that. And really writing is just being creative. Of course, there's, of course, there's technical aspects to writing. But I think you can learn those along the way. But a lot of people, I think, put in those things as roadblocks. And it then just, then it stops them from ever progressing. So I didn't want to stop myself. I'm pretty aggressive in the way when I have, when I have something I want to do and I commit myself to it, I just do it. And even though I'll make mistakes, I learned, I learned that the mistakes or the failures are along the way. 
teach me. And I learn and I look at those as, you know, opportunities and lessons versus things that will stop me from getting to my goal. You know, I mean, you ever, you ever seen that like that there was a meme or GIF or whatever that was put out. It shows, it shows like whatever people, what everyone thinks like success is. It shows like beginning and then end is like a straight line. And what it really is, it's like a bunch of squiggly lines. Yeah, that's kind of how anything is in life, you know, like, I mean, like with your podcast, did you take a bunch of stuff or you just started doing it? Of course, you probably learned along the way, you tripped up here, I should have done that better. But you kind of get into it and then you start learning it in some ways. Otherwise, I know, again, I just talk, I'll talk myself out of it. Yeah, totally. With the podcast, oh my God, I had thought about it for a really long time. I had worked for other podcasters. I had co-hosted a show. I had worked in radio. I had helped book hard to reach people for other people. Then I'm like, why can't I do this for myself? And in the beginning, I was like balls to the wall. I was like putting out three episodes a week. Then I was like, okay, I kind of like made a presence for myself. Now I can chill out. Now I can get more strategic. Now I can stop editing to death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm sure the editing is the big, it's like, it's like the rewriting and the writing process. There's more labor there in rewriting a book than actually writing it. The rough draft, I believe. It's yeah, probably was, the same thing with editing. I was going to ask you that. Like, have you ever published a book and then been like, oh man, I should have added something. Of course. But you know, the thing is there, there also just comes a, a time too. you just have to commit anything, whether it's committing to starting something. And it's also the commitment to ending something like committing to like, this is good. Because we can, again, I think it's a part of self-doubt, concern and worry about how the world will view you. So people, I know people that completed their manuscript, they've had it edited professionally and they go back and they tinker and they tinker and they tinker and they never stop. I'm like, why aren't you? Well, it's just not quite ready. I want to make it perfect. Well, define perfect. What does perfect mean? You know, if you've got it technically accurate, then it's subjective. Perfection is subjective when it comes to writing. You're telling a story. What's perfection? You know, it's like, I, again, I get the technical aspect to make sure it's grammatically correct, syntax, the flow, but the perfection in storytelling is subjective. And when people do that, they'll keep tinkering because they don't really want to put it out to the world because there's fear. So, yeah. So the same thing is like, you know, you can tinker with anything. You tinker, you can tinker probably with the editing of your podcast. I want to make this perfect. But you finally just have to commit like, this is good. This is really good. Let it go. And then you let it go. Yeah. You know, there's interesting things too about the beginning of a process. Like, yes, in the beginning, I re-recorded sound bites. I tried to write some questions out. Now I'm more confident and even sometimes preparing less, like listening to one or two episodes that the person I'm going to interview has been on another podcast and then having a couple ideas in mind and just letting the conversation flow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be organic. The same thing goes with writing. Like I don't even, ha- I don't have outlines. I'm not an outline person. I know that blows people's minds. <laughs> Creative writing teachers and professors are like, what? But I think, and I know that's kind of Stephen King's method too, don't have an outline. And it's because I think, because there's two different sides of the brain that are operating. When, you, when you're writing an outline, you're kind of very analytical about it. And you're just kind of looking at what kind of you, what you want to do. But when you're actually writing it, you're tapping into something that's creative in another side of your brain. And things will come, I call it like the creative ether. Things will get downloaded in your brain when you're writing organically. There'll be characters and situations, scenes that'll just manifest themselves on the page. And my wife has heard me laughing because I'm like, oh my God, look what I just, I just created this. I don't even know where did it come from, right? It just downloads in your brain. 
the outline, if I was doing an outline, I wouldn't have been able to tap into that level of creativity. But when you're writing organically, it comes. Now, if you have an outline that you're very strict towards, you then find yourself hostage to the outline. So you'll find yourself in the creative process and you'll stop it because, wait a minute, let's bury me off course. If I create this new scene or create this new character or do this with my main protagonist, that blows up my outline. I, I can't do that. And people will stop themselves and they will delete that scene so they can get back on course to an outline that was written while they were in an analytical frame of mind, not a creative frame. So that's why I don't advocate for outlines is it holds writers hostage to something that was created, not creatively. I hope that makes sense. It truly does, because yeah. I just had a keynote speech, my first one that I was preparing for, and everybody kept telling me to have an outline, and it was making me stiff. I was like, I just need to be able to mm -hmm. speak in my own voice and like be yeah. myself and figure out how to weave my story points together. Like if I try to have it be story, moral transition, story, moral transition, I am going to sound not like me. Like robotic. Yeah. yeah it doesn't, yeah. the outline doesn't work for me either. I'm totally mm -hmm. a creative. I, that really makes sense to me completely. And it's interesting that you said, like, you've made yourself laugh out loud in writing. Yeah. I was going to ask <laughs> you if you've ever made yourself cry or yeah, yeah. like emote out yeah. loud. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. I've written scenes that are emotional because you become connected to the characters. You know, if you read the series and you know what happens in the long road, and it's a very emotional scene. I've had a lot of people get very angry about that scene. I don't want to make any spoilers for people that happens to the characters, you know, to a, to a character. And yeah, it's it's upsetting, but it's part of the, you're telling the story and the story. It's the concept of a story arc. So yes. And so some characters have to die in order for other characters to thrive or to learn a lesson or to progress and grow. Yeah. So I clearly had the demise of some beloved characters that have upset me. Yeah. yeah. Also, I'm wondering like, what does it feel like to see your book like on a shelf at the airport? Amazing. <laughs> I mean, of course it does. I mean, it just feels, it feels surreal. Yeah. It feels really cool, but there's more great things that are coming that are even bigger than that. So it's kind of cool, you know, like if I were to go with my wife and I were just kind of in the hot tub yesterday, you know, enjoying ourselves, enjoying our Sunday. And I was just talking about the things that we're, that I'm, work, I'm working on right now that are going to be really pretty, pretty big. And there's some intimidation about something that's bigger than things you've ever done before. Something I haven't done yet, but it's, it's, it's going to be happening. And then I, I catch myself in the self-doubt kind of vicious cycle of self-doubt. Like, am I worthy of having that occur? And and then I go, wait a minute, of course I am, because if I were to go back 12 years ago, I hadn't even written a book yet. And if I were to ask myself at that time, am I worthy of it? I probably would have had some self-doubt. This is, by the way, one of the reasons I just go all in on something, because I know myself enough to know that I will put up my own roadblocks. So I can't, I can't. So I just have to go head first into something like a bull in a china shop. Otherwise, I will sabotage my own self. And so like... Yeah, it's cool, but now I'm kind of used to it, but I kind of want other cool things to occur. And they are that are bigger than seeing my book in bookstores and airports and things like that. Can you talk about when you decided to go all in, when you made that decision? God, it was, I'd always wanted to be a writer and it was a vision in my head. Like the second, there's the prologue in the end and the book called The End, there's a prologue, which I added later on, by the way, it was interesting. So the first chapter was supposed to be chapter one. There was no prologue in the original rough draft of the book. And that was the scene where Gordon Van Zandt's in Iraq and they're fighting the second battle of Fallujah. And I'd, I'd had that 
that scene in my head playing for five years before that. I always had this scene like, because I'm a big reader, so I've read a lot of apocalyptic books. And there's always something that I found missing in them. It was finally one day that I I decided that, well, if there's something missing, I can search for that. Or why don't I just create my own? You know, and why keep searching for something that, and I've always had this kind of fantasy, like, oh, it'd be really cool to be an author. How, how kind of fun is that? <laughs> so I was like, okay, so I'll just write my own book. And I knew I'm always an idea guy, I'm an entrepreneur. And I knew if I presented it to my wife as an idea without having, actually having something in my hand, she would just, I would get the courtesy eye roll. so I knew I had to produce something so then I hadn't gone all in yet so I just was tinkering and I'd written that vision that dream of that scene under the page and then I'd written the second chapter and then I told we were walking we had the stroller out we're walking you know our daughters in the stroller and I mentioned I was like you know what would you think if I wrote a novel so he goes oh well just don't let it interfere with your job blah 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 yeah, that'd and, be my response. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I know, but it, it, it's a typical response. How many people go from an idea or specifically want to be a writer and the next thing you know, they're bestsellers and they're picked up by Penguin, all this stuff that happens. It doesn't happen all that often. And so I said, knowing her well enough, I said, well, when you get home, I've got two chapters written out. I want you to read it. Just give me the time. I'll put the kids back. I'll put the kids away. And, you know, I said, and she goes, okay. She sat down. I was taking care of the kids. I came back and she was done. And I said, what'd you think? And she goes, it's really, really good. It's really good. Yes, you should keep, keep writing it. But again, you know, you've got your job, <laughs> you know, you know, stay focused on what's really going on. This is kind of a hobby. But then I decided I wasn't going to make it a hobby. I was going to make it a second job. And so then I would stay up late at night writing. And I learned that little, you know, I like to learn from other people that are successful, kind of model what they do, you know, and like Stephanie Meyer, you, you familiar with that author? No. I'm sure you've read um, the Twilight series, the vampires. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. So she wrote the Twilight series. It, it's, her, whole, her whole story is very interesting in and of itself. It came from a lucid dream that she had, and then she would spend nights writing once her kids were put away, and her husband was fine, and she would go down late at night, and she would just hammer out all these words. And she had written it and initially self-published it and got picked up. And I was like, well, she, that was kind of an inspirational story for me. So that's what I would do. I would like, everyone's happy. Wife's happy, kids are in bed. I'm going to go down and spend a few hours. And I treated it like a job versus instead of a hobby. So I made sure that I scheduled it every single night. And I went down and I had words written and I gave myself goals. And did you like it was put that then on the that calendar or? Oh, yeah. No, it was like something that had to be done. Like it had to be done. And I think that's the difference between that is the difference between a hobby and treating something with, with importance. Like a job. Like good jobs are important. Like, you know, the alarm clock goes off. You got to get the morning, you got to go to your job. There's no like, well, I think maybe, who knows? It becomes something. So I treated it like it. So when the alarm went off, like I have to go down and sit in front of the glow of the screen of my computer and write, right? It had to be done. There was no getting out of it. No calling in sick, so to speak. Anyway, so I treated it serious and things started happening. I got an agent and that made it then that made it even more serious. Like this is, wow, this very few people get agents. How did you do that? That was through a connection that I'd had. And again, just because it's connection, all it was like, it was just an introduction. I still had to present the manuscript and they still had to like, like it. And so she liked it. Margaret was wonderful. And then we were working together for a while. And then, and I'm kind of, yeah. So that's why I'd kind of taken it very, very serious. Like I was all in on getting the book done. I was working late at night to do it. Okay. I got to ask my husband's question because it kind of goes in here and, you know, he gets the first one. How disciplined do you have to be as a family man to find time for your creativity? 
you've got a mortgage, you're working full time. That kind of goes along with like what you're saying. Yeah, it is. Yeah, no, and I think there's time for every, I think we put our attention and focus on the things that we find important, right? That's just life, we do. When I hear people like, well, I don't like, well then it's not that, it, there are, there is, we can find, I, I know there's some exceptions, nothing's a hundred percent, but we can always find some time, we can. We can always find some time. It depends on how important is it really for us to do. You know, making sure my family's taken care of is clearly my highest priority. And so that's why then what I was doing is late at night, I was sacrificing some sleep to make sure that I got this done because it was a dream. And if this dream could come true, then I could really take care of my family even more than I was, as well as I, was I would be taking care of myself, but also taking care of my family if this thing took off. Like what a gift that would be for them and a gift for myself. And so I still had the priority. I still had my job. I still took care of my family, but I would just sacrifice a little bit of my own me time to fit in those hours to get that writing in. And what was priority. your job at the time? At the time I was a diver. I was a commercial diver. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I've ever met a commercial diver. How did that come about? Well, I, it was something I was like my second phase of commercial diving. I then I, after I got out of the Marine Corps, I, I became a commercial diver. I went to Houston to commercial diving school. That is something I actually have to go to school to do. I had to get an accreditation. And so I did that. And then I went to work in the oil fields, like in the Gulf of Mexico. Did that for about a year and a half. And then I was involved in a near-death kind of accident. I almost got killed. And I was like, <laughs> I'm not getting paid that much. I was getting paid like 12 bucks an hour. I was like, this is really dangerous for as much as I'm getting paid. And it was a mistake I'd made. It was a boneheaded kind of rookie mistake that I had made that almost got myself killed. And then another opportunity to present itself. Like, well, this door was here. I'm looking at this door. It's like, this, this really sucks. And then this other door opened. I'm like, that's kind of cool. So I walked in that door. And that's when I, would, I was a bodyguard for about 10 years, a little over 10 years. Anyway, long and short, I was back to, my wife and I moved back to San Diego from Idaho. And I was looking for, I sold one of my companies and then I needed something to do. So I went back commercial diving in San Diego. Crazy. We're in Houston now. My husband just took a job in the oil and gas industry. Yeah, so I was working for a company, I don't think they're existing, but AOD, American Oil Field Divers. We would go out of Houston or was it Baytown? And or we'd sometimes go out of some of our facilities in Louisiana. I didn't yeah. actually realize like how dangerous it can actually be in yeah. extracting oil. Oh, of course. Whether it's, whether it's the guys working on the rigs doing stuff or the divers in the water, the whole thing is dangerous. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, think about those guys working on the, on the platforms, working on the, specifically working on the drills, that pressure, the equipment is, is, yeah, you've seen it. I'm sure you've seen videos of it. It's insane. Yeah. And one wrong move, even though, you know, safety is of the utmost importance and people have died. It, it's, mm -hmm. it's terrifying. Whoa. Well, I'm glad you're okay. Now yeah, to those bigger <laughs> dreams that you want to accomplish. I want to hear about some of, yeah, like what would you dream of happening what are you working on now are you helping other people get published yeah so i've got a publishing company that started two and a half years ago with my business partner shannon legrow and that kind of got started we here and I, her and i kind of partnered up to write a book using her content from her podcast i call it flipping content so i went and found i kind of needed to the, the, the big the genesis the genesis of all of this i got burned out from writing novels Mm. And I was like, you know, I'll find some other kinds of, I'll keep writing, but I'll find some other content and just kind of rewrite it. And so I was listening to some of these podcasts and I'll, and these were like narrative, like these are her interviewing people and they were telling stories. 
that were interesting, paranormal, kind of weird, scary stuff. I was like, well, what about if we took that those stories and just flipped it and put it into book format, right? Because mm-hmm. people will consume podcasts, but then there's certain people that don't consume podcasts and they consume books. So there's a certain number of the market share or marketplace that's being missed. These are great stories. Let's, why don't we go ahead and put them in a book form? She was all about it. So we had written the first book and then she was getting a bunch of her friends that she knew in the space. Like, this book is fantastic. How do I go about writing a book too? And I wasn't going to be someone's ghostwriter for everybody. And so the long short of it, the idea for us to, write, to create a the publishing house came up. So I was just, all I did then is u- using her kind of influence in that space, the paranormal space, you know, and marrying together my expertise and knowing how to publish and produce books. That's was the beginning of Beyond the Faith Publishing. And so we did that. We still, I mean, the, the company's still going. I'm the managing partner of it. It's still going good. And I, I got the break I needed from, you know, writing novels and fiction up until recently. Like I need to get, I'm back at it now. Like I need to get back to what I'm best at, and that is being a storyteller, being a creator, and creating worlds and characters and situations. So I'm back at that. And then there's some other things. I don't want to give any spoilers yet of what's coming, but there's some pretty, pretty significant things coming with the books. That's exciting. Yeah. What have you learned from creating the publishing company? <laughs> that I like being a writer more than a <laughs> producer. <laughs> That that's your nothing, against all, nothing against all the wonderful writers that we have. It's just, you know, it's, it's, you're managing other people, you're managing other authors, you're managing, you know, and I kind of like, I'm glad to be back kind of doing my own thing, creating my own stuff. Yeah, I can relate to that too, because when I started my podcast, I was like, how cool would it be to create my own show and then show other people that they can do that too? Mm-hmm. And I did that. It led to me producing a couple other healthcare shows, which is cool. You know, corporate companies have the budget to actually make it worth your while. But then when, you know, entrepreneurs come up to you and they want you to produce their show and they don't really have the same kind of budget and they want the same amount of time, then you start questioning, like, do I want to do this for everyone? Like, mm-hmm. Well, especially when you have something that's good. Like what your show is really good. And I was thinking too, it's like, well, I can put the energy toward creating someone else's or I can take that energy and and time and resources and put it back into my own thing. Yep. And what else can I do with mine? Where else does mine go? How bigger, how much bigger can it grow? Of course, it's infinite. It can can continue to expand. So it's about where you put your energy, right? Where you put your focus, where you put your focus, your energy goes. Right. And I can focus on doing more research, getting guests that people really want to learn from, being more selective on the interviews that I do, doing better interviews, doing in-person interviews, going and collaborating with people in other location. That's a cool idea. Also, I had an idea, like you were saying, if there's a pain point, like you couldn't find the book that you wanted to read. I was thinking there's a lot of people that are doing podcast reviews or there's a zillion podcasts that want to be reviewed how cool would it be if like me and my dad listened to a podcast together of a guest that I would love to interview and then me and my dad had a conversation about that interview and we could start a newsletter around that like we do a review of a podcast once a month and then maybe I start reaching other podcasters that I really want to reach that's a great idea because there's not very many people that are doing podcast reviews well but there's a zillion podcasts. So that's something I feel is missing. 
Yeah. And then well. it, it relates to the, you know, me and my daddy getting special time thing. It's interesting when I started my show too, like I didn't realize so much of who my audience was going to be. I don't know if you feel that way, but when you start getting feedback from the audience and pitches from the audience and responses from the audience, like I feel like my show kind of took a pivot. You know, in the beginning, I wanted to do mm -hmm. the whole like shock and awe and like show people that, you know, I had connections in reality TV and, you know, that I can reach celebrities and stuff like that because I was doing that for other people that I had worked for. And what I got in response was actually inspirational father stories, absent mm. father stories, sperm donor daddies, all these plays on like the daddy daughter relationship even. And I find those actually to be more interesting and more deep and something that I'm leaning more into now that I would not have expected. Well, that doesn't surprise me. You know, something that I kind of look at life, my whole new thing is happening with, I'm doing right now is with kind of this rebrand of and coming back as a, as a novelist is, is just really adopting the word adventure. You know, life is an adventure and to mindfully live every moment. And what's interesting about the concept of, of an adventure is that you're open to whatever is going to come into your space, right? And then you can ask a question when something unexpected or someone unexpected walks into, what walks into your space, then you have to ask, why are you in the presence of that person or thing? Like, why is this here? And then choose it as an opportunity. Where, where's the opportunity? What am I supposed to see that's here? Why? Why is this person here? You may not get the answer right away, but it'll come. And so, like, even when I'm writing books, I, I'm very open and I give myself permission to make changes. This is why I don't do the outlines. One of the things, too. Like, I'll sometimes even write the ending of the book. I already have the ending and I'll write it right away. Even though, so then even though as I'm writing the book, already now having the ending fixed or kind of an outcome that I want, I always give myself permission and grace to change it because I don't know what I'm going to become in the presence of on the way, on the adventure of the writing of. And our lives are, are kind of the story we tell ourselves anyway. So as we're going through life, as you created your podcast, you had this outcome that you were thinking of, but then also these other unexpected things came in there. Now, you probably could have held it yourself really rigid and go, no, 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 I'm just focusing on this. Or you just open yourself up and like, wow, this is kind of fun. This is kind of cool. This is interesting. Let's follow and see where this goes. And I think a lot of those, when they, they come to us for reasons, and I think they're supposed to be there. It's like God, the divine, is coming down and presenting something, right, that you have to go down. And this is why I think it's important that someone, when they're creating, to just not to be held hostage to an outline, not to be held hostage to a specific outcome that has to look X, Y, Z, because things will come in your way that are supposed to be there and you're supposed to open that door and walk through it. I am so glad that you said that that is spiritual because I, from the very beginning of what you were saying, I felt that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you pay attention to what God is bringing into your life, yeah. you know, and you don't have to take all of them, but pay attention to that. It's, it's very interesting. And it, and, and so you have to yeah. be aware. Be conscious oh, you of have happening. to have your eyes open to yeah. it, definitely. Yep. And and yep. I know that you've had kind of a spiritual awakening mm -hmm. recently. Do you want to talk a little bit about that at all? I can somewhat. Yeah, I definitely have, without a doubt. I'm a believer in all throughout my life, I've always had a faith that God is will take care of me. I've always had this very uncanny belief that everything will be fine. I've wavered in that faith sometimes where and it's only as I've gotten older, like I, I you know, I, there's something to be said when we're younger, we, we tend to be a little bit more flexible, I think, when we're younger, a little bit more kind of laissez-faire about how life is and just, well, let's take it out as it is, whatever. But it's, you know, I'll just speak for myself as I've gotten older, I, I found myself to be a little bit more, no, this is got to be on schedule, blah, 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 and rigid. That rigidness and that 
devotion to that and got me kind of caught up in this past year, just kind of like, what, what, what's happening? And come to find out that some of my choices led to consequences that were of my own doing. It's so easy to sit back. And even though some things had happened to me, I still had put myself in that space or, enter, or entertained it, if that makes sense. I don't want to go into any detail so as not to upset anybody else. And so anything positive or negative, because we are the authors of our own life, we actually have a hand in it. Even when something bad happens, we probably had, maybe not 100%, but we probably had something to, to contribute to that, without a doubt. Especially again, if you keep be, experiencing it again and again. Yes, yes. But we You're definitely like, are. I, I hear people like, we're not, we're not really victims of anything. Unless, there, I mean, there are certain, certain, without a doubt, there's certain things that can happen to us where we're 100% a victim of the circumstance. But then whether we continue on being a victim is a choice. It's a choice to stay in a victim mode. We can be, someone victimizes us, but are we a victim? There's a, a nuance to that. You can be victimized, but then you look to yourself as a victim. Because when you look at yourself as a victim of something, then you give that power you have over to that individual who actually victimized you or to the situation, or do you kind of open yourself like, okay, that happened to me. Now, what role did I play in that? Because I was there when it happened. Did I? So you take ownership of your part of the situation when it's negative. And even though someone did something to you, you go, okay, I had some role. You take ownership of that. And then once you take the ownership, it gives you so much control and power back. And then just don't, and then look at, then make the switch. And this is what I do now. So make the switch and find the opportunity in the situation. And that can be very hard for people, but it requires surrender, you know, and surrender can be a very difficult thing. I know being a Marine, people look at, and I've always had a hard time adopting the concept of surrender because it means like a weakness, but it's not when you surrender, like when surrendering to God is a surrendering because you trust God will take care of you. So that's the concept of surrender to God. It's like, God, I know you've got me, so I'll surrender to it. And I'll just be here doing my thing because I know it. And whenever the time is right, you will bring whatever to me and take care of me. So you have to surrender anxiety and fear and doubt have to go away. And but the surrender the component, when something happens to you, you look for the opportunity in it. It's so much better to look at good or bad things as opportunities than to look at them as somebody did something to me, then therefore I can go around and bitch and complain and, and sit in a negative space. I don't know. Just, I know I'm going long-winded about it, but, but yes, but during this journey I had over the past year, I look at it as a blessing and I'm very grateful for that the situation occurred because it's put me to where I am today on a very solid footing and great things are about to come. Can you talk a little bit about what you had to surrender to? Lots of anxiety and, you know, I have lots of anxiety and stuff that happened. And so yeah, I don't, I don't want to go into too much detail about the situation, <laughs> but it was one that was very personal, but I am grateful that it occurred. I know it's, I'm just kind of getting on the edges of it, but it's, I'm grateful that it occurred because again, it just gives me, it's just opened up so many doors from having something bad that happened. And I'm just super grateful for it. Wow. It sounds, sounds bad. Something bad, <laughs> yet it's actually something good. It is really hard to see yourself in bad situations. Like what role did I play? And do you always think that you play a role? I think without a doubt, a hundred percent. For the most part, we, we, we are the authors and creators of our own life. When something is happening, we do play some role. It might be a minor role. We might be a minor character in that part of our story and our life but we typically are playing a role in it. 
That's interesting to think about. I challenge people to really look at that, really look at things that happened to them. You only can grow as a human being when you have self-examination and take ownership for the role you had in anything in life. Because then you can look and like, I could have handled that better. And like, for instance, say someone comes up to you and says something offensive. There, there's words out there. There's things that people can say that can be very offensive. Now, once they, that comes from their mouth, you then, are you offended? You don't have to be offended. Now, just because something is offensive doesn't mean you have to be offended. This is a choice. We enter into that. You can choose it and look at the person like, hmm, well, I don't know why they said that, but that's what they said. And then you can keep your state in a way like, and walk away from it. Because once you allow yourself to be offended, you become a victim of their words and then you give some of your power to them you give some of your energy to them you've allowed that person to affect your emotional state or you can be the person in complete control of your emotional state and just look at and look at what they said and go well i just want to associate with that person and move on with your life it's an opportunity that you've just gotten to know somebody and you now realize you don't want to be with them or that maybe why why did they say it? did you say something to them that made them react so this is part of the self-examination. When something happens, you're like, what, what was my role? What did I do? Well, I didn't really, really do much at all, but I'm not going to let them change me. I'm not going to let them change my emotional state and I'll just walk away. Okay. So I have a son that's 14 and he's thinking, you know, my husband was Marine reservist. His grandparents were in the service. He's thinking that's something that he wants to do. I mean, he's got a few years to make that decision, but something interesting that he said to me was, he thought by being in the service that he could potentially earn people's respect. I thought that that was an interesting reflection at 14 to think that. What do you feel you got from being in the service? Do you feel like it gave you self-confidence? Yes. Do you think, do you think yeah. it gave you a sense of self? I mean, looking back now, I think we can't look past our own inner selves to have other things validate us anyway. Mm, oh, that's deep. Yeah, it, well, it's just like people, nothing on the outside of us will actually ever make us complete unless we are already complete. Mm, yeah. And when we don't get that, then this is where people then start looking around for other people or things to fill them up. So yes, respect will come to you when you're in certain roles, first responders, military, you know, whatever people, you know, society looks upon those, those individuals that have those roles and admire them. I would suggest people not enter into anything saying that that will give them the respect because they should already respect themselves. Ooh, that's a good line. So maybe I need to have a conversation around that. Okay. I got to get to a couple more questions from the audience because I literally have a page full. So Kayla Watts wants to know the negatives of self-publishing. Wow. Okay. There's definitely some. The negatives. Well, the negatives are you have to do all the work. 100% of the work and from making sure you find an editor or making sure you find proofers, graphic designers. So you kind of have to really go out and find that team that you're going to need in order to produce your book. Then you have to discover how you're going to successfully market it, how to you know, publicize it. You have to do it all yourself as an individual. That's a negative. So if you want to self-publish, you definitely need to be somebody that is willing to work very hard and be a quick study on from the finest people that have successfully done it and then kind of mirror what they've done. And then there's also this kind of egotistical negativity that can occur. And that is, there are some people that don't, going back to the respect thing, <laughs> that don't respect self-published works. They don't consider those people to be legitimized writers or authors because they weren't picked up by a mainstream traditional publisher. But that's a story that people tell themselves in today's world, you can be highly successful 
and recognized as a terrific author being self-published now. And you even got rid of your agent and chose to do the self-publishing route. Can you talk yes. about that? Yeah. So Margaret's a wonderful woman. <laughs> She's listening. She's a wonderful person. Anyway, so we just had some creative disagreements. And so we parted ways. And then I went and did the self-publishing route. Thank you, Jeff Bezos. And book kind of languished for about 10 days. And then it just took off and just would stop selling. And then once that happened, then you, you want to talk about going all in. That's when I went all in. I went to my wife and I was like, listen, like this thing is selling. She's like, well, you can't quit your job. I'm like, hold on. Always prepared because <laughs> I know my wife. I, I always come prepared with something now. Like, well, once you look at this, it was a spreadsheet. And then the, the first month I'd made more than I'd made the entire year before. And she goes, and I said, what I need to do now is I need to quit my job. Being the diver, I need to quit. And I need to go full time in writing the sequel. Because there's that door of opportunity was open. I need to step through it. And I couldn't wait a year and a half. I needed to get the, I wanted the sequel done within four months. Like I know it's people's attention span and the way the book was selling that I wanted to get a sequel out right away. And once I gave her the spreadsheet, she looked at it, she could quit your job. And so then I went, I went about doing it. And then Amazon started noticing the sales. So they started some representatives from Amazon reached out to me and goes, Hey, we want to like introduce you to some kind of beta programs that no one is using right now. We'd love for you to use them. So I started doing that. Sales kept growing and growing. I put the long road up for pre-order and that was just selling like hotcakes. And then publishers started reaching out to me. And then was it in August? No, late July, three months after I self-published Dan, Penguin Random House reached out. And because the other, the small publishers are like, no, 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 I'm selling, I'm doing really well. I don't need to. And then when Penguin came knocking, I was like, wow, they're the biggest publisher in the world and they want me. So then I looked at it and they offered me a very attractive contract. And then that's when the ego stepped in. Going back when I mentioned about the ego thing, I was like, well, you know, self-published authors don't get that, that validation. And that would be really cool to be say that I'm a published author with. And by the way, I still get those questions when people go, but are you, are you published with anybody? You know, as if like my success means nothing unless I had that. And I'll go, I'm serious. I so people still have this kind of, antiquated 20th century view on authors that they need to be represented by some big mainstream publisher in order to be a real writer or a real author. Yeah. I'm with Penguin Random House. Anyway, so I picked up a four book deal with Penguin in August, uh, which would have been then four months after I self-published. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. Congratulations. That's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> but you want to know something that's interesting? There's certain things I didn't realize. So the, the product pages I had with Amazon were doing so well. And the way the algorithms work with, with, with Amazon's massive search engine is that my book had populated everywhere, right? Everywhere. So you go on anyone else's product page, my book was somewhere listed on it. And so I was everywhere. And that's why the sales are just burning, burning. What I didn't realize is when Penguin took over my books, they created a brand new product page, brand new that didn't have any of those connections. So the second they turned off my old product page and they turned on the new one, the sales went, sales cratered. Yeah. It was, yes, I, I mean, that's... I, I cut, not cool. And I and then, heard you and, say too, on another interview that like, when you go with a traditional publisher, like they want to market it to their audience. And when you self-publish it, it's to your tribe. Yeah. They, they had so many restrictions. Again, this was just me being naive entering into it. Yeah. I've learned a lot, but because uh, I went into it with the ego, the advance was very attractive, but then my ego was like, I'm going to be represented by Penguin. Oh, look at me. And they restricted how quickly I could produce books. That's really slowed me down. They had a year and a half between each book. That's like an eternity for me. 
Your first one you released first... in six to seven months, right? So I released the end and then, then the long road came out four months later. And then I was planning on having the third book sanctuary out by the end of the year. I was like, we're already, I was like, I'm going, I'm like a racehorse. And then when Penguin got a hold of it, they're like, no, 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 we'll put that out in November of the next year. I was like, what? I said, well, I said, well, you know what I'll do? I'm just going to write some other stuff. Like, oh, actually, no, clause, whatever, item, section, whatever. You can't write anything else. Like, what do you mean I can't? Just, no, you can't do anything else. Like nothing, like nothing. I was like, what have I done? <laughs> I know. Wow. I know. But that was my own doing. See, I could sit and bitch and complain and be a victim. But the fact of the matter is I signed that contract. I entered into that at my own free will. And then I became hostage to it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I also yeah. am interested too, like, did you connect with book bloggers? Did you do a book tour? None of that. Yeah. No, in fact, to, to this day, when people ask, how did the Envy do so well? How did it sell all everything it did? I, I have no idea. God. I, I, I don't know. I, I literally don't know. I didn't know. I had no marketing. None. Zero. zero. I mean, I published a book with my daughter, like through the pandemic, I got her a reading and a writing coach because when they were stuck at home, I was like, okay, if they just stick to their reading and writing, like they'll be fine. Like I had an eight and a 10 year old, you know, I felt like if I just focused on their reading and writing when they were stuck at home, that'd be good. And my daughter really took to having a reading and writing tutor. She loved it. And good. her reading and writing tutor was a published author. And then my daughter was like, I want to write a book. I was like, okay, cool. Like, I have a girlfriend, mompreneur, who's a cartoonist. She could do the cover. You could do the illustrations on the inside. You know, kid art is cute. And she collaborated with her tutor and it turned out to be really great. And I was like, how cool is that for her to accomplish through the pandemic, right? And then she's like a published author, something she can talk about to her friends. But yeah, like not really understanding the KDP publishing platform that well like I didn't really even know how to market it much beyond my friends and family yeah it's challenging <laughs> and you started off writing a kid's book too with your yeah, daughter so and 20, now your daughter you've collaborated with can you talk about that too yeah so in 2011 I wrote a children's book called Doggyville and it was more of a legacy project it's based on a story I would tell my girls I was kind of, my wife would go in and read to him, but I was kind of the one that kind of would put him to bed and kind of read to him at night. And so it, I would read to him these typical, you know, Good illustrated children's books are out there. <laughs> yeah, all of them, right? They're all pretty much the same, right? Pinkalicious. Oh yeah, I love it, right? Pinkalicious. Yeah. So like read those books. And then sometimes I would then just tell them stories. And one was about a, a dog named Kiki. And his American Staffordshire Terrier. And he had all these adventures. Like, tell us about Kiki. Tell us about Kiki. And so I would make up all these elaborate adventures that Kiki was on. And I remember coming in my wife. And I was like, you know, what if I, what if I just did a children's book? I was looking. Because then I was, I mean, I'd read a hundred of them, you know. And I was like, there are only about six to eight hundred, maybe a thousand words. I, I mean, I would just, I'd hire an illustrator. And I mean, it'd be kind of a fun project. Yeah. Like, sure, whatever. So I, I did that. And uh, I'm happy to say I got all my money back from all the investment. I mean, I, I had to work hard on that, but I did. <laughs> I went to like every daycare, did readings, every kindergarten. Like, <laughs> like anyway, so that was a fun project because the kids, my, my daughters are actually in the book. They're illustrated, kind of they're, you know, part of the story. So that was a fun project. And that kind of is what, having that as an idea and then having it in my hands physically was like, okay, I can do that. And that's what then the, the, the thought of a novel started to really rise up inside of me was when that happened. But yeah, my youngest Savannah is a, loves to read and she's a terrific writer, by the way. 
she's a she's gonna be a way better writer than me one day she's gonna i was she's writing a book right now another book but her and i collaborated on a she she likes more of the horror side of things and oh my so she god this, my kids love horror she had this scary dream and she was telling me about it i was taking her to like this running club on a saturday and she goes let me tell you about this dream it was very lucid and she was like going on and on and on and on, and on like 20 minutes i was like sounds like a great plot for a book i said you should write it so well, only if you write it with me so she wrote it and then i did the rewrites and you know we kind of went back and forth and then we published it was a couple two three years ago called the doll it's a novella. Ooh, I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah. Talk to me about what it's like collaborating with your daughter. It's fun. It's amazing. I, I just absolutely love it because it's just, I get to share that time with her and then we're just creating something new that never existed before. And it's just to see that in them is just really fun. It's really cool to do that. What it's, do you think she's going to be like? Oh, she's going to be amazing. She's going to be fun. I, she's just got this wit and humor, and then she's just got this creative edge to her that I love. She, she's way more advanced than I am, or than I when, when I was. She's, she'll be thirteen in October. She's way more advanced than I was at thirteen that way. So I'm like, I'm excited for her future. She wants to. That's what she wants to do. She wants to be writer, and so like, she's gonna be. She's gonna kick my butt in sales. I know one day. I mean, how cool that she has you as an example, and that you guys can collaborate together. That's cool. It's fun. Yeah. I mean, what's a better legacy than to have that, right? Yes. I actually love that you mentioned that word. I was going to ask you, yeah, what does legacy mean to you? And did you ever talk about legacy with your own parents? No, not with my own parents. No, but it's really become a word and a value that I think is important in my life. You know, I think, and I think most people should have some kind of a legacy. I think our children can be legacy. But then I think God has given us unlimited potential to create legacy outside of that too, as individuals. You know, like your podcast is a part of your legacy as an individual, as a woman that's out there doing what you're doing, influencing the world, storytelling, yeah, inspiring people. That's a part of your own individual legacy. I think that's a wonderful thing. And we should all as each individual know that we can have some kind of legacy, whether it's a creative thing like we're doing or it's the person who takes their time and spends it with, you know, being a coach for a softball team. It's about taking time selflessly to go out there and contribute to the world outside of ourselves. Yeah. When did you know that you were an artist? Uh, I still today don't consider myself an artist. <laughs> what? I know. I don't because I guess I have this really probably stupid definition of an artist. I always think the artist is the person that's like, well, I'm a starving artist. And, you know, it's like... I don't know. I just, I guess I am. I look at myself as a storyteller and a creator. I guess I'm an artist, clearly. But yeah, it was years ago. Again, when I started, I've always had these ideas about writing and wasn't, but I finally got past my fear and just did it. I love that. Okay. Let me look at one last question from the audience. Oh, how do you differentiate yourself in a crowded space? That's John Barker. He's another podcaster. How do I differentiate myself? I just try, I mean, as I've gotten older, I just try to be an authentic person. I or just how try do to be you, like pick the subject that well, you want to write about. I love science fiction and I've always found the end of the world as an interesting concept because I think apocalyptic books isn't it it's not about the demise, not about the destruction or the end of something. They're human stories that are being told. How people are reacting when they're face to face with something that's cataclysm is occurring. How how are they acting? Because it's a test of your character when you're face to face with something you end up having binary decisions that have to be made. 
And then what are those? You know, are you selfish, self-centered, or are you more altruistic and you're out there looking out to help your family or other people and neighbors? You know, who are you as a person? I think that's what I try to tell with characters. Specifically, I've grown more and more as a writer. And these other books I've put out, Seven Days is more of a human story. Hope is another one where you're just telling about people dealing with extraordinary circumstances and what they do with them. Other apocalyptic books I read are just really glorify more of the violence. You know, my books have lots of violence. (laughs) That's not done for the sake of glorification. There is a way I I do want to shock the reader because I want people to be shocked. But then I want people to think what they would do in that circumstance. How would they act? What would they be doing? I want to really draw the reader in and have them be in that that space where that decision must be made. There's that situation in the end where Gordon has to make the decision. He hears the, his friend yelling about his kid, but then there's the guy who's got, who's got the medicine he needs. It's a very, you know, neither situation's good. You go left, someone dies. You go right, someone dies. Make the choice, but it's binary. And I was fascinated about the human concept. I mean, this is something too, by the way, an apocalyptic event, doesn't have to end in violence, but it always tends to. And it's because people's choices and how they react to it. So imagine this, if everyone had collaboration, right? Whenever you have some kind of event, you ever notice when there's a hurricane and a lot of destruction, the EMS is prohibited from kind of responding. There are certain segment of society that turns back and they go and they riot and they pillage, they loot, they just do horrible things. But then you also have a segment of society that comes together and helps each other, right? when something bad, like a hurricane or tornado or some kind of bad thing occurs. So when you have an event on a large scale, like an EMP were to go off and you'd have all EMS offline, everything offline, you would have a chunk of society that would go crazy. But why is that? But is that chunk of society that goes crazy that ultimately brings about the actual collapse? Because violence doesn't have to happen. Those are choices that are made by people. And so imagine if, if an event happens and everyone came together in collaboration that helped everybody else, we'd be fine. But the end occurs because of a certain number of people that don't. And then, then other people react to those people. And then these things tend to spiral out of control. And violence can be very contagious. Yeah, definitely. It was very eye-opening reading that. And I also have one final question before I ask you if you have a question for my dad. Are you a prepper? I am definitely a prepper, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so is my husband. And I didn't grow up that way. So, yeah, it's and I'm in Texas now. So. <laughs> I look at it as just like, I have people give me the eye rolls and they think I must be living in the woods somewhere. We're in camouflage all the time. I'm like, no, 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 no. It's just like an insurance policy. It's having resources, skill sets, knowledge, yep. mindset in order to handle a situation that might occur. Oh my gosh, we just had a pandemic that scared the heck out of people. Yeah. Like my husband, before it was the pandemic, like he felt like he saw that coming. He was like, he had the toilet paper before there were the toilet paper fights. You know what he probably had? He had like, I had the same thing, peace of mind. That's when you're prepared and you're a prepared minded person. When something occurs, you now have a peace of mind that you're fine. Everything's going to be okay. You can now, instead of rushing out into the world to gather the resources, you have them. And if you've got a family, that makes you feel even better. I can now close the door and lock it. My family's secure because I took the time to ensure it's an insurance policy. That's it. It's an insurance policy for life. You know what? This is the funniest thing. This reminds me of, I was living in LA and I was living in a guest house. It was like a $2.5 million home in Burbank, you know, and I'm living in a converted garage. This was like a score living in LA, finding this space. But I grew up in Kentucky where like my dad leaves the door unlocked. You know what I mean? So when we first started dating, 
And he's like, what? You don't have a proper lock on your door? Like what? He, you live in LA. Like I'm putting a lock on your door. I was like, oh, this is a good guy. <laughs> Literally day two, he's like getting handy and putting, installing a lock. But I was like, the owner of the main house, like has dogs, you know, we're behind a fence. I felt like, you know, I, I'm going between the main house and my little guest house doing laundry. He's like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> yeah. It's awareness though, because not every place can you have your door unlocked, right? So that's just a matter of being aware. And, you know, I go to the grocery at night. He's like, don't be playing on your phone in the parking lot. You know, my husband is like big. Situational awareness. Situational <laughs> awareness. I, I didn't even know that terminology until I married this guy, but yeah. Okay. So do you have any questions you'd like to ask my dad? I do actually, you know, being a father of two wonderful daughters and one's 14, seems like she's going on 18. When did he allow his own daughter to start dating? Okay. Yes. He will have some stories there. Oh my gosh. Well, it has been a complete honor to connect with you. I absolutely love your books. I'm excited to be a beta reader of what's coming next. And yeah, please like let people know how they can buy all your books and support you. Yeah. So just visit gmichaelhoff.com and all my information's right there. And I still have some openings if people want to be part of my advanced reader core. I've got a select number of people are going to do that. And then, yeah, so that's still open for people. And by the way, that is strictly just to read it. There'll be a fully edited book and just for people if they want to review it and then share it. As far as the beta reading, there's no need for critiques or comments or that'll all be handled. So like you as part of the, part of the core will be just you'll be able to read it and then review it. That's it. So the beta readers will come before. That's one's kind of unedited and I kind of figuring stuff out. But no, the advanced readers are, are going to get a polished final book. But you actually, being of that, you're going to get something tomorrow. I am so excited about that. Yeah, I forwarded it yeah. to my husband too, but I still plan on buying the book because like well, I want my you. kids to read them. Actually, I did hear that you said that your Westerns don't have as much violence and that you said that kids could read those. Well, the Western, there is some violence just because it's the Wild West. It's not as graphic and there's no cursing in it at all. There's no curse words at all in any of the Westerns. And my daughters read, my daughters read, well, actually my daughters read, they, they have been reading my books. They're, my, they're like number one fans. <laughs> That's the best. That's so sweet. I mean, any way that I feel like you can involve your children in your creative work, I mean, it's just such a blessing and it prepares yeah. them for the world. Well, what's interesting, you, you said your son wants to be a Marine. Well, my daughter wants to be a Marine too. My oldest daughter. I know. How do you yeah, feel about that? I mean, I'm all in. Like she wrote me this wonderful like Father's Day note she did on Father's Day. And then, you know, she goes, you're my role model, even though I don't always show it. That's true. <laughs> and then she goes, I can't wait to follow in your footsteps and become a Marine. You inspire me so much. I mean, come on. That's like amazing. Yeah. So she she's going to go to the Naval Academy. So I'll be saluting her. <laughs> Wow, that's that really takes cool. my breath away. Yeah, that's legacy right there. And so, yeah, I think, it, you, again, what's, you, you put your energy on what you focus on. And that's very important for me in my life to be a, a legacy to my daughters so that they can go into the world and you know that they've got the support of me and the support of, you know, their mother to be strong individuals, strong women. I mean, you couldn't have wrapped up the episode any better than that. Oh, my God. My dad is going to love that and, and agree with that wholeheartedly. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with me. Well, thank you for the opportunity. It really means a lot. You have a great podcast and I enjoy, I enjoy watching it. Aw, thank you. Now.
Let's switch it over to Grandpa. When did you allow your own daughters to start dating? Oh, Dad, you wanted us to date early. You think so? There were certain people you encouraged us to date. So you, you think that I tried to stack the deck? Yeah, you even offered to pay for it. You know, you're like, take so-and-so and I'll treat you to Kentucky Kingdom or take so-and-so and I'll treat you to Derby <laughs> Dinner Playhouse. Don't you remember that? I think I did do that. I tried to influence you with boys that I might like first, right? And isn't that really part of the intrigue of your continuum? This episode brings out legacy also, where even if you don't think that you've been passed a legacy, uh, people that experience gains in their lives and want to do uh, justice and good to humanity and the world, they want to uh, feel like they have a legacy to pass on. So a legacy can start at any time. I thought that was a very interesting concept. It doesn't have to be someone else's legacy passing on through to you. You can also have your own legacy and pass that on to your children and your children's children as well. We all want to be able to make a mark in this world and be able to hopefully for the good of the world, pass it on to not only our children, but to other people's children and be able to leave something behind, hopefully not in a selfish way, but in a rewarding way for others. Well, I think he's definitely doing that. I mean, my God, his books are widespread. What I liked about the discussion of his books is that he tries to see that under pressure, how people are going to react. Not only does he do it, and wanting to see how he will take a story, but he tries to intrigue his listeners and his audience to get involved. And if you want to be successful in whatever endeavor you're doing, we've talked about this before, you have to be able to have people get involved with what you're doing. And he does that in a very dramatic way. And isn't it true that, again, the easy way out is to do nothing? The easy way out is to pick evil over good, picking yourself over others. It's a a simple equation. But once you want to complicate the equation and you want to add more and more and more variables to your life, then you have to have more and more and more possibilities and more and more people involved. And that's what's so fascinating about choice. You have to see and experience all the choices in order to be able to really make the best of decisions. And he's not afraid to make mistakes and learn from them. What was extremely interesting is that you don't have to be a successful publisher to be under somebody's big name or roof. He found out that he found methods of communication and going on Amazon and being able to sell his books. What's so funny is that when you are in a corporate structure, you lose some of that freedom. That's why entrepreneurship is so wonderful, is that you get to set your own boundaries. So if you paint yourself in a corner or you paint yourself into a box, you limit yourself of possibility. And he brings this out several times in your discussion with him. And isn't it quite ironic that people sometimes feel trapped when they can't really express themselves fully? Don't you feel that way sometimes yourself? Oh, definitely. I thought it's also interesting too, that if you sign with a major publisher, then you could be held to their schedule of when they want you to release the next book even. And their standards. And you have to be able to be directed to their audience, not necessarily even the audience that you're trying to project to. Very interesting. And yet some of these big publishers 
have a tremendous audience that follow what books they publish. And they are also looking for people that fit their mold. If you don't fit their mold, you can't get your book published unless you do it their way and direct it towards their audience. Otherwise, to be out to lunch. But the irony is that communication in today's age with podcasting and with all these different services on TV and streaming, that people are having a chance to express themselves where they can think outside the box and be heard. And that's what our show is about also, Arena's show. And what is that about? Is it being able to be authentic and real and being able to catch stories and have discussions and be able to add some wisdom to it and be able to share it with the world? Because we're interested in not only doing better with our own wisdom points, but willing to share those wisdom points with other people. And we're learning as we go along. And we can then also try new things and do things where we're not curtailed by some type of manuscript where we have to follow it. It's good to have an outline of what you want to do, but don't put yourself in an outline where you have to hit all of those points. Sometimes you have to go with the flow and see how it develops. I prefer that a little bit of go with the flow. By doing that, you, you get a more realistic view of life because we're not robots. Things can change and you have to be able to have the skill level to be able to pivot and make those changes. And most of us make these changes because we've learned from our mistakes where we know what bad choices lead to. But if you only are a mathematical equation, guess what? That doesn't always work. But sometimes the variables can change to a sequence that we haven't experienced. And if you're just automatic, you make a very bad turn. And what Jeff is bringing out is that people under strain or stress Sometimes they will rally together and help in a situation like a hurricane or a storm or a house burning down because you have good examples and people stepping up and rising to the occasion. However, what about if you're in a bar and somebody is drunk and loaded and thinks attacking or raping the girl at the bar and saying, come on, guys, join right in. This happened in New Bedford where evil and a bad choice taken to a high level of intensity, all of a sudden you get people that become a mob and they do terrible things because they don't want to be left out in whatever movement is happening. So it doesn't have to be where the intensity is always good. It can be bad. And a lot of people just jump on board however it's going. What's interesting is that when evil is at a high, high, high level, very hard for good to overcome that. So that's why preventive measures are always needed to prevent disasters. That's where insurance comes into play, which came out in your discussion as well, is that we want to be prepared for terrible things. And as we're prepared for terrible things and know that it's possible to happen, we try to snap it in the bud before it turns into a blazing fire and get out of hand. It is definitely best to try to be prepared. It's good to be prepared. And that way, if you're prepared, against disasters, you have a chance at least to limit the damage. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. 